the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show as we head into Hour 3. A delight to do so. In studio, I have Mr. Hugh Hallman. He is the former mayor of Tempe. He is an attorney in town and an educator and uh, civic uh, and philanthropic uh, activist and uh, advisor around town as well. His son, Lewis Hallman, also joins us. He is the managing director of Insight Analytics. I-N-C-I-T-E, Analytics, LLC. Delighted to have you both here, gentlemen. We love having you here for your ride home on Tuesdays when you're in town. What say you? Um, you want to talk about the Wall Street Journal? Well, I don't want to talk about the Wall Street Journal. I want to talk about how we closed the show last week. Okay. Uh, identifying that there are three places in the world that are completely upset that the world order is in disarray. And I would argue that the U.S. is in large part responsible for allowing that to happen. We didn't cause it, but we allowed it to happen. Lewis is truly the expert and spoke many times on this show about the Bretton Woods Agreement. We'll get there in a second. But the three places that we, I think, need to focus on uh, to help listeners and others of our uh, our fold understand these issues in a way that calls into question some of the current analysis taking place. They are Russia in Ukraine, what's going on there. Uh, Hamas in Israel and what's going on there, and China and Taiwan and what's going on there. Those three things are linked together uh, in that the United States has set the table to allow those things to happen, that we had exerted uh, after World War II a level of influence in the world to to provide an environment in which others could succeed. And to set that table, I really want Lewis to articulate kind of what happened in short order that got us a relatively peaceful world even during the Cold War. Absolutely. So I'd like to turn our attention back towards the Second World War, the greatest conflagration in human history, and look at what was motivating the two primary antagonists, Germany and Japan. Both powers were principally motivated by a desire for resource acquisition and territorial expansionism. Leibniz-Rom in the case of the Germans and the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere in the case of the Japanese. Um, but in both cases, principally... elbow room. Or correct, living, living room. Breathing elbow space, room, yeah. Right. And you, you can see this indeed uh, uh, even after war was, was waged in the German decision to invade the Soviet Union and the Caucasus for their oil reserves um, in June of 1941. So why... Uh, uh, did did we were we able to take uh, uh, these two regimes, the most arguably antithetical to human flourishing and in human history, and how were we able to convert those two powers, which were 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 you know the 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 embodiment of evil in, on the world stage for the better part of of two decades, um, ultimately. We set the conditions when we won the war to win the peace. And in doing so, we gave Germany and Japan a greater degree of market access through the Bretton Woods Agreement with the U.S. Navy, the only Navy to survive that war, assuring market access, 
for any country in the world as long as they were on our side against the Soviets. And you need to tease out what you just said, that last sentence, the Bretton Woods Agreement. Sort of explain it, because not everybody right. remembers it if they've ever, ever heard of it before, so, other so than on this show. The, the idea, then, is that... So before World War II... I mean, even why is it called Bretton Woods Agreement? It was signed at the Bretton Woods Hotel in uh, New Hampshire. Now, before World War II, free trade as it exists now did not, didn't really happen. We had an imperial system where you would go colonize an area, go out, extract resources from your colony, process and keep everything in-house. You would secure your own trade routes. Everything was in-house. The British, the French, etc. And that meant that everyone had to develop competing imperial systems and competing colonial systems that often came at odds. This is then the bloody human history of the 19th century. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue was because Spain was looking to create its trade routes and its control in in the Americas. Market access and resources, yeah. absolutely. And so as World War II was winding down and as the Allies were trying to paint the picture of what the peace would look like, they, they created the Bretton Woods Agreement. And what it, what it allowed for was, was any power then could go into to any other country, engage in trade, and bring the resources back. And the U.S. Navy would be the guarantor of safety on the global oceans. And so this then gave Japan and Germany the ability to access markets and resources that they wouldn't have had even if they were successful in their offensive goals in the Second World War. And in doing so, the United States created a peace that removed the entire rationale for fighting in the first place. That is how the enduring peace uh, uh, of the last 80 years uh, was kept. And so now we need to turn ourselves to the Middle East and ask ourselves if the way to achieve a lasting peace is is a game theoretic one it's creating that sustainable equilibrium that removes the cause of conflict how then can we set the table in Jerusalem in Tel Aviv and 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 throughout Israel and Gaza and the West Bank such that we decouple the motivations for conflict. And that's not just Israel and Gaza. That question is China and Taiwan. That question is Ukraine. Russia and Ukraine. Exactly. So let me, I'm going to, in the moment, tease out a, an example. How do you get to that solution in World War II? There was massive destruction that had to occur to get the mindset of the Japanese and the Germans to be changed. You had decades of inculcation of bad ideas that young people took and understood and carried forward, that uh, more and more young people became Nazis uh, in, in Germany, just as more and more Soviet youth became inculcated into that entire environment. That sets the stage for these horrors because you've got people who have been trained intellectually into this idea. And now they become members of the troops, zero one, whichever side they're on, that's where they're going to be. And you've got a huge problem in changing that mindset. Well, now we've got uh, Russia with 30 years of propaganda back into that society that the empire needs to be expanded, that uh, others around them are evil. Uh, they still don't trust the Chinese, but the Chinese have been supporting them, et cetera. And how do they decide that they're going to get into Ukraine? How did uh, Vladimir Putin convince his population that going into Ukraine was a good thing? Because Ukraine was filled with Nazis. 
I got to see, because I spend time in Kazakhstan, the Russian news feed about their explanation of why they were putting troops against the Ukrainian border and what they were being prepared for. Because Ukraine was filled with Nazis that were threatening Russia. That was the theme. So you've got the same thing going on in Gaza. Uh, You've got Palestinians being trained for decades that Jews are evil and all of this kind of stuff going on. And you've got the same sort of mindset in China that listening to the NPR feed just last week with leadership from China explaining that, oh, no, 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 Taiwan and China are actually one country. They've always been one country and that this is just playing out the agreements from 1980 that ultimately Taiwan is to be part of China. And now we're just taking the processing steps to make that happen. That's what's going on in the Chinese mindset. And how do you change that mindset when the option of educating somebody about the truth of those things is impossible? It, it, it's, a, it's a remarkable world that we move to. You know, there are, there are a lot of parallels uh, to the the types of fanaticism that we see nowadays, uh, particularly in the, the Middle East, as a as a notable example, uh, and I would argue something like the the kamikaze attacks that you saw in World War II, um, both are are I would argue profoundly alien to the Western way of war, and we're left often scratching our heads at how how we defeat an enemy that then is capable of of deploying such tactics. And ultimately, you don't get there without tremendous sacrifice. And that's going to be the, the very sobering piece, I think, of all of this, is that d- despite the heroic plan to win the peace, had Roosevelt and the Allies simply presented Bretton Woods in 1941, it likely wouldn't have taken. You can't just have a good offer. The material conditions and the psychological conditions on the ground have to be right also for peace to occur. And that's the crucial piece to keep in mind. And so crucial element to keep in mind. It, it, it's not as, as simple as offering access to Jerusalem and then assuming that this campaign in Israel will wind down. Here's our two-state solution and we'll have access to Israel. Yeah. Right. Uh, as an example. Yeah. Setting all this up is, it brings out so many interesting branches from the tree that you guys built with the wood from Bretton Woods because there are also issues having to do with culture, issues having to do with religion, issues, ha- issues indeed having to do with region and nationality. And it complicates things in a way that I want to unwind with you gentlemen when we come right back. And we will be right back. I love that. That's so great. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Turns out she's actually not a Native American. I learned a term. They just discovered that this week. Um, I didn't know this. Pretendian. Did you know this term? I've never heard the Pretend. term. Like Elizabeth Warren. Exactly. Like and, Or Iron Eyes yes, Cody. Or yeah. uh, the woman who accepted the uh, yes, Oscar yes, for... Yes, uh, yes. Feather... Yes. Whatever, something. for Marlon Brando. Or Marlon yeah, Brando none for of the them. Godfather, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so if I understand, Lewis, and you'll correct me if I'm getting the large theme wrong, I might be. Conflicting countries and conflicting claims on... on 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 territory and and in suing for peace and ends of war we have done a good job in the past and we have set up models in the past where we can do it based on a unifying economic model based on helping rebuild economies mutual trade am i getting the main theme right close enough broadly yes broadly yes so the the, the key things are 
really that it's removing— In other the- words, after World War II, Germany and Japan became economic powerhouses with our help based on a mutual understanding of how economies and trade would work with one uh, another. Yeah, and, exactly. the, and the broader point wouldn't okay. be that it's, it's not always economic, right. but you need to okay. understand what that other party's okay. interests are okay. in order to satisfy those interests in a, in a way that is acceptable to humanity. Um, and so, for example— uh, Wahhabis have not really had a That's renaissance, right. Yeah, right? right? You've got to deal with that cultural piece that you're, I think, wanting what? to give voice to. And to how do you do that? Go ahead. Well, you want to the, do that? The, the other go. piece as well that, that I want to point out is that it's not one size fits all. Just because the, the Bretton Woods style worked very well with Japan and Germany, because giving them market access was what they wanted, doesn't mean that we can just give market access and that will solve or pacify a region. I would note that our recent nation building failures in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, uh, indicate that we don't always have a very good understanding of what the the indigenous peoples want. But another example that I think helps understand that it's not always economic, although arguably there was an economic piece to this, uh, the Civil War right. and results of the Civil War. Right. The, 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 the piece we're not really articulating is in order to get Germany to a table where they would change their mindset and reach a peace that we could win, and the same with Japan, it was a horrific process. We right. bombed Dresden. Right. We, we broke. Bombed. We broke their will. Correct. We, we broke their will and pride. Com- right. And yeah. completely just you right. know dropping which I bombs right. on Hiroshima. That's my question. And Nagasaki. But then the the Civil War example is uh, emancipation. Yeah. Yes, and got the march emancip- and, and the march to the sea by by Sherman. I would argue. Correct. As well. That's the point. That, that, was that the Sherman had force. to go right, right through right. the middle of the South and destroy. Right. Enough of it that it brought people to the point that they said, we get it. And my sadness remains that had Abraham Lincoln not been murdered, he would have played out the end game of that in a way that would have helped us heal the wounds, as he said, right in 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 the Gettysburg Address, he is talking about how we get to that end. And he is murdered instead. And the the process of healing the country's wounds does not get executed well. And instead, we we reopen many of the wounds in the South and found ourselves back into some of the same fights uh, that we still suffer from today. So two issues arise immediately. I, I can't do China. I'll leave that to Hugh and Lewis to do the China part. And you, I will leave to do the Russia part. Let me start with Russia. I think it's easier. It might be more crude. It's almost seems as if the Russian civilization itself has never advanced, though, to a point of wanting any part of this. Lots of cultures have advanced, whether they went through renaissances or whether they went through any number of uh, any number of things. There's something about the Russian culture that is still kind of like the Viking culture. And and I don't know if they're impervious. I don't know if it's culturally rooted. But then we also now let's talk about Gaza and the West Bank. Let's talk about much of the Arab world. Um, It's its own special problem. What's weird about this when you say that they haven't had the renaissance – in an odd way, they may have, and it got bowled over. I mean, we know supply-side modern economics from Ibn Khaldun, I think, and Al-Farabi was one of these great, and Maimonides, who came from that area, was one of these great. So They're, they may have had it, and but the tide and strength and power of this religious theological fanaticism, they don't care about money. I don't even know if they care about life. In fact, they will often tell you that they'd rather die than live. And so you've just now set a table that 
will take us 10 hours That's to even I start do. to unwrap. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, let's start with the Russian piece. I do believe you're correct that there is a – and that is not just about Russia. It is across this globe – cultures matter. And for those people in the United States who beat down our Western culture as meaningless and valueless and then hold up other cultures as somehow the font of great sources, fail to understand that there are pieces of each of these cultures that they should be very wary about. And for Russia, the strong man rule, the strong person is the is the person to follow there is a actually a rich academic history talking about just this facet of russian history uh encapsulated best perhaps and if you'll forgive it it might be a little bit crude but russian backwardness is is sort of the long-running academic concept of this correct and And it's thought that that a lot of this stems uh uh from the the muscovite uh, uh principate's development after the Mongols rolled through and subjugated the Slavic peoples for effectively two or three hundred years, which were were nightmarish civilizational conditions. And so this Russian backwardness has has sort of left its mark on Russian history with a lean towards highly centralized, highly authoritarian types of policy with a slightly theocratic and militaristic bent, low commerce and side. I'll, and I'm going to add to that. So what Lewis gave in a, in a term is something people actually know when Genghis Khan or Genghis Khan, depending on how you like to pronounce it, came out of Mongolia and China and created the largest empire in human history. He controlled most of Russia, controlled Europe up to uh, halfway in Austria. He had to kill 25% of the world's population to do it. In China. And interestingly, <laughs> right? all of no, the areas right? we are talking about fall under the shadow of Chinggis Khan's empire, and there may be more to that than we think. And that's what I'm getting okay. to, is okay. that the Russians not only had what Lewis said, but a paranoia that exists to this day, right. that the, the Mongol hordes, that word is not as pejorative as people would like to think, it is the name of the concept of a tribe, the group, they are still called hordes in Kazakhstan. There are three hordes of which you are a member. That all comes down from Genghis Khan, Genghis Khan. The three grandsons are the source of the three tribes, the three Jews, the hordes in Kazakhstan. And they don't forget that they were subjected to that takeover by the Mongol Chinese horde that came across. And neither do the Russians. And that is baked into a cultural response that you see today. The paranoia you see in Russia today is from that source. Lewis is exactly right. And that culture cannot be overlooked in the solutions we create to create societies. And we can get to it. But, you know, World War One, World War Two, rewriting the map of the Middle East without any understanding of the tribalism that existed there is part of what we're having visited upon us today. You, to win the peace, you've got to understand completely, and you've got to be in a position to win it. We need to, when we come back, talk about why it's not so easy to get there. Okay, great. We'll be right back. This is fascinating. Lewis and Hugh Hallman are my guests. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Hallman and Hugh Hallman are my guests. Uh, Hugh is the former mayor of Tempe, an attorney in town and an educator. Lewis Hallman is the managing director of Insight Analytics. Do you want to say a word about what Insight Analytics does? Absolutely. So uh, I provide uh, business consulting solutions, uh, whether uh, budgeting, reformatting chart of accounts, uh, machine learning, analytics forecasting. If it has numbers associated with it, I help make it better. Thank you. 
Um, we were making the point right before the break that certain cultures, certain nationalities seem to be impervious to what we might call either modern – a modern era, an enlightenment, Western values, Western civilization. We were talking about Russia and the deepened culture there, some of it resultant from a memory that we in America have a hard time with memory. The rest of the world doesn't, it seems like. They think in thousand, they think in millennia, and we think in uh, five minutes. So when we, and social media, Lewis, I know, can do 10 hours on this, but when, when we live in this social media world where, as we like to say, five-minute historians, you know, people who learned history five minutes ago and forget anything that happened two weeks ago, you know, everyone in the rest of the world is thinking and still living with what happened thousands of years ago. In any event, it gets us to this interesting point about Western civilization and how we get along and go along and appreciate the rights and modernity we have. It's kind of a sad state of affairs when the greatest explicator of that in today's world isn't on a college campus, but as an HBO comedian. Anyway, go right. ahead. Bill Maher talking yeah. about the, the fact that what we now have in Western society are the crucial values that have lifted people, billions of people, out of the worst circumstances and horrible poverty into better conditions. That has not always been in the West, and that's an important point right. because when Genghis Khan conquers much of the world— the European societies that we now think of as Western were backwater uh, thugs fighting one another in the same way one sees in the Middle East. Up through, uh, you know, 12 and 1300, you've got the British murdering one another over whether you're Catholic or Protestant. That can go forward, as the West did, and taking ideas that actually originated in the Middle East. The Code of Hammurabi sets the notions of law as the rule of law. And many other values that we now have were taken by Europeans in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and brought forward. Our founders relied on Greece and Rome for their best examples of how to create a constitution and wrote a book called The Federalist Papers, ultimately newspaper articles. Can you imagine these things being printed in a newspaper and anybody reading them, let alone publishing them in a book ultimately? And The Federalist Papers give voice to these ancient sources of law that created this now Western culture that the left thinks is horrific. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you like what the Middle East used to be, you're seeing it in the United States. But as Lewis would tell you, that can go backward. Absolutely. History is not a one-way street. There is this delusion, I think, that's popularized by academia in the last hundred years or so that History is a line that only goes up, that things only get better, that things only we improve. call it progressivism for sure. Right. right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But there were the Dark Ages. Right. And and not only the Dark Ages across Europe, but, but we can see that things don't necessarily go forwards in, in various disparate parts of the world. Uh, to your point, there were alkaline batteries found in Baghdad. Uh, uh, in the, the 1200s, dating back to the 1200s. Tremendous center of learning and science and humanity. And, and yet we see with the rise in the 19th century of Wahhabism, so much intellectual promise, so much opportunity in the Islamic world just dashed. Repeated when you have the burning of the Library of Alexandria destroyed. Uh, there's a book, in fact, uh, uh, called How the Irish Saved... Oh, yes. Yeah. 
the West, I think, yeah. or civilization, yeah. And it's a description about how the learning that was at risk at being lost was pulled in by monks in Ireland and saved by transcribing all of these otherwise would have been lost works to preserve the knowledge that had been gained in human history because it doesn't always go forward. And we see what's happened to the Middle East, as Lewis just articulated. We now see this mess of places. And the one place where one can still see the best of the thinking that came out of that area is in Israel. And it's been in Israel for 4,000 years. Let's return when we come back to the endemic problem we have, though. We were talking about it a little bit last week when I said, can there really be peace? I mean, you know, everyone wants to talk about it. Can there be with a culture or a at least theologically hardened mindset that doesn't care about anything we just talked about, though once did. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Hallman, Hugh Hallman, my guests. All right, gentlemen. So, uh, Hugh, you were beginning to talk about, and we were all talking about, you know, how you have a modern and enlightened country that has been influenced by both Athens and Jerusalem, in <laughs> whose capital is Jerusalem, as it turns out. Baghdad, Cairo, and a whole bunch of and other ba- places. Yeah, yeah, all of it. Up against, what, the civilization and theocracies that decimated their breaths of enlightenment when they had them, which may very well have in many cases preceded even ours, I'm thinking about the Ibn Khaldun's and such. Egypt fell, Rome fell, yeah. uh, the Middle East, which was at the leading edge of things, fell, uh, brought us uh, you know, geometry, and, and uh, Pythagoras creates a theorem that helps us now build pyramids and other things. Um, all of that is true, and it didn't come from the United States. Right. We're the beneficiary of this this insight, and it can go backwards. I think I know what the sticking point may be, Seth. Do you know what exegesis is? From the Bible? Mm-hmm. The bib- biblical uh, teaching? Sure. Sure. So, so if, if you have what's called an exegetical religion, it means that you can uh, uh, refine and take things out. from that book right. and discuss it in context with other things that are not within the That's book. That's what the Talmud did to the Right, Talmud. exactly, exactly, yes, yes. Critically, Islam is non-exegetical, right. which means that the Quran is wholly internally self-contained the Word of God. And in, because of this, it has a much uh, more limited ability to evolve and refine its own internal theology over time. And one of the issues that we would have is this, this non-exegetical component, getting the clock to roll backward, as we were talking about in the last segment, getting us to recapture the, the, the glory days of the Middle East and using that as the, the sort of beacon of cultural heritage that they could aspire to, the challenge that we're going to have is convincing them that there is the ability to go back and that they can then uh, uh, eliminate portions of of the, the the faith that they've cobbled together in its current equilibrium and go backwards. That, you know, that we, to me, is the hard part. We saw this happen before our eyes. At least Hugh and I did. Um, 
just based on age you may not have, with the Khomeinist revolution of 1979, we saw an Iran, basically a modern-day Persia, which it, was one of the most enlightened cultures, mo- very one of the most Western artistic, looking. absolutely. You know, and, and how did Christopher Hitchens put it? Until a black-winged ghoul came flapping back on an Air France to impose a veil, a, a dark veil on a people too used to being imposed upon. That's almost exactly word for word how he put it. And shut down art, shut down music. We saw this happen before our eyes, Hugh. We but, saw it happen. So Lewis makes the point in that you have the Quran as the source that is limiting this. That was not always the case. And Al-Farabi was alive in the early days of Islam, writing and thinking and creating at the very earliest days. He didn't die until late 900. Mm-hmm. Uh, And so this is someone who was there at the founding of Islam. Islam made its way, sorry, folks, into Kazakhstan in the 1100s, and it was creating knowledge and uh, and commerce and ability. The Silk Road was in operation from Turkey and the Middle East into China and back precisely because there was this intellectual connection that created these opportunities. That's how those ideas spread. And it was only in the last few centuries where we see this rollback of the notion. Well, hobbyism came around in the 1700s. Correct. And you've got this notion that that was somehow bad and you cannot work outside the four square corners of the Quran. (laughs) As we were becoming a nation while hobbyism was, yeah. Well, and the same for France. So you had, you know, kings ruling Europe as we're moving towards those Western ideas that came out of the Middle East. And that's what's so incredible here. So— the issue of can we have peace, you wanted to make a nexus. I, I do think it is a wise man I'll who noted uh, on the microphone not a few minutes ago that you've got this source of knowledge and the genesis of it, no pun intended there, uh, that has been wiped out in certain locations. Lewis's point. This can go backward. It can go backward in this country, ladies and gentlemen. We're seeing the start of that, where people are grabbing hold of cultures that are antithetical to the Western ideals that were adopted from the Middle East, from uh, from Egypt, from Greece, from Rome, that created the rule of law. And we've got to be very careful, and maybe that's what's got me so nervous, that we've got a country that we can lose when people fail to understand the bases, the basics, the philosophy, and the ideas, which brings me full circle to here we have three things going on in the world. We have China threatening Taiwan. We have Russia in Ukraine. And we have the Israel mess that Hamas really lit fire to again. And in my view, the U.S. brought us there. Failed U.S. policies, examples of uh, are uh, that the the, uh, Obama administration did nothing when Russia rolled into Ukraine, into Crimea, to test the systems. Did a failed pullout of Iraq, uh, of uh, of Afghanistan, demonstrating our failure and weakness. And those were all signals to people who are looking to topple the U.S power base for their own ends, Russia, China, and Iran. They have come together and through foolhardy belief that soft power is going to do the deal, fail to understand that sometimes 
Might is what's required. And that was the opening point. How did we get to Bretton Woods? We got to Bretton Woods through horror. We bombed Dresden. We bombed Berlin. We bombed Nagasaki. We bombed Hiroshima and brought cultures that were uh, completely opposed to Western concepts to the table to adopt them. Which is, you know, takes us back to something else that we talked about last week, which was we're talking about populations that esteemed life. We are now talking about a population where sometimes death is the greater induce. In other words, if Israel were to do Dresden, it won't, I don't think, And it, but if it were, or whatever this thing ends up being in Gaza on the ground, it's going to create more animus, not less. I would certainly in the short term. Yes, that's correct. It's it's not only is it the the ability to execute uh, doing in nothing Gaza also does and, <laughs> doing nothing also and does. and right. to to uproot the current iteration of Hamas, but it's then also about understanding the enemy, understanding that game theory, and being able to set the peace so that it can indeed flourish and and hold over the longer time horizon. But the institutions as they exist are currently incompatible with peace, yeah, lest hence I, the ground. Invasion. Yeah, lest I be unclear on the point, doing nothing also is... I'll let you guys put a tie on it when we come back and uh, put a bow on it when we come back. But right, that's why I'm thinking in terms of not peace but survival these days. But I'll let you fix it when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman have been my guests. Um, to say a civilization or a culture has been westernized or enlightened, of course, doesn't always mean everyone within it. <laughs> Obviously, we still need laws, criminal laws. Uh, I don't know if you want to use that as a springboard uh, to the issues of fraud here. I don't know how you want to close. I've thrown a lot at you, but it is your job to close. You have the closing arguments, gentlemen. The big arc of this issue is to deal with the fact that we opened with talking about we've got three major international problems, in my view, caused, and we never really quite got to that, because of U.S. uh, absence at the table or absence of leadership, lack of leadership. I'm hearing conservatives spread across these issues in different ways when they all three, in my view, share a basis that would argue for a single result and conclusion and, and approach. I hear people talking about the fact that we should back away from Ukraine because now the new talking point is it's because there's corruption there. Uh, I hear people uh, talking about that it's not our business to deal with China and keep them reined in with respect to Taiwan. And then ultimately, the right is actually currently supporting Israel in its effort to protect itself, using your word from the monologue today, protect itself from Hamas. Just using Ukraine as the example, backing away from that table turns the U.S. back on a treaty, more or less, that we helped negotiate uh, the Budapest Memorandum that got Ukraine to give up its nuclear weapons in exchange for our agreeing that their territory would be sacrosanct, that Russia, Great Britain, Northern Ireland, and the U.S. signed this agreement that Ukraine would be protected and we would not let others attack it. And then we let Russia attack Crimea, did nothing. We blew our 
exit from Afghanistan. Russia observed that. China observed that. Iran observed that. And Hamas understood the lesson as well. Israel is now under terrible pressure from the U.S., from U.S. population to bend to Hamas. It's absurd. But the example of Ukraine is, if corruption is your concern, then why, ladies and gentlemen, are we sitting here where COVID money got doled out and more than $400 billion was stolen or misused? $300 billion of it stolen and $100 million of it misused. Lewis, why didn't you put a bow on that point? Absolutely. I would like to just add a piece of context for that. The entire size of the Ukrainian economy, <laughs> all of it, every piece, is $200 billion, which means the waste and fraud of our COVID uh, dealings were twice the entire GDP of Ukraine pre-invasion. And the entire amount of money we've contributed to Ukraine's efforts were not cash, but old weapons that had been in stores for decades, and now we're valuing at their original purchase price. How many 30-year-old cars are per, uh, sold at their original purchase price? And on top of it, we're now complaining about that as fraud. We've only put in $80 billion. That's a third of what we've allowed wash out of our systems. Holmans, thank you. i got to wrap up. God bless you all. For David Dahl and myself, class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 